Welcome to podcast number 39. It's been a while. Apologize for that. You throw in a Las Vegas shot show and a trip to Japan for Grim Japan. And the next thing you know, a month's gone by. Uh, I'm 39 here. It's a great podcast. We're going to be talking to Mika, Micah from uh, Peak about a recovery that they had to do off the shore of the United States. Uh, without any further ado, here's number 39. So we're uh, on podcast number 39 with Micah Rush, who is the director of Peak Rescue. And today we're going to be talking about a incident that they took part of uh, out at sea and that he presented on at ITERS 2019, the International Technical Rescue Symposium. But to start with, uh, Micah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And uh, so you're the director at Peak Rescue. Can you give me a bit of background on Peak Rescue, who you are, and uh, what you do? Yeah, we're um, sort of a small instructional standby response team out of Wyoming. Um, sort of that uh, train and um, move around. We, we do everything from backcountry training to industry to response uh, mainly in the remote mountains of Wyoming, uh, but we have started a bigger response into Middle East and uh, just recently last year into the Gulf uh, Mexico, sort of international waters. Right on. Now, you're a mountain guide, if I remember and read correctly. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm an IFMGA mountain guide. I obtained that through the American Mountain Guides Association. So I'm curious about your background. I mean, there's not a lot of individuals out there that can pull a confined space rescue that have mountain guide behind their names. I know of very few. So just curious as to how you managed to mix all that in. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a funny story. I, I started my career as a climber, obviously, and then started guiding and then moved into a, um, I worked for a professional fire department and sort of took over their rescue program. And what I found was sort of hitting walls is, you know, if I'm in one industry, they tell me, well, you're not a, technician Micah and this, an NFPA technician. So I sort of just started chasing down different um, avenues for rescue. So I started with uh, obviously the industry rescue. I um, started my IFMGA career, got into rope access because um, what I'd hit is these, and I, we have a big wind industry here too. And they'd be like, oh, you're not a, you know, a rope access guy. So I was like, well, what's the highest you can get? Level three. So I went for that. And I just started moving, and what I found was that cross-pollination of all of those uh, just made me a better rescuer overall. Um, yeah. All righty. Uh, a couple questions on that. How long have you been with the fire department? You don't have to give out the name of the department, but just curious. Uh, I've been with my department 14 years, and I've been uh, – I was sort of a volunteer, let's see, five years before that, four years. So right on. Quite a long time now. Absolutely. And uh, we're rope access. Is it Sprat, Irata, you dual certed? Uh, Sprat right now, um, not dual certed. I think I will. It's one of those things that I got into it years ago and I'm sort of coming back around actually and getting a bunch of my guys certified. So it's been a fun process because so much has changed in that world also as far as what they let you use now, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I remember my first Sprat course, I think was 2007, and I don't, I don't even think there's a thing I was trained on that's allowed to be used in industry anymore. <laughs> I know at the last one, I was talking to my buddy Keith, he's like, yeah, greons, and um, you know, you can use all this stuff, JAG kits or whatever you want. It's great. I love it. 
Yeah, it made the level three rescue go a lot easier when the guy was hanging off two grillions. <laughs> you don't have to have a degree to get it done. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's great. Right on. Um, so in particular, you got you were chatting about uh, what you called rescue at sea for in Eiders 2019, and uh, what an exciting uh, incident to be part of. And I'm just kind of curious if you can give me a little background on that. Yeah, definitely. We got a call, actually, um, a company that we work with, it's sort of a um, sister company, Partners, it's a consulting, and we do all of their training and response. They got this call, and basically, um, Steve, a guy I went to the academy with, called me and said, hey, Micah, we have an incident in the um, Gulf in international waters. Basically, our first report was we have five guys trapped in a, um, an offshore rig. There was an explosion and they can't get them out. Would you be interested in doing it? Um, of course, I was yes right away. Uh, us being in Wyoming and then being in the uh, international waters was the first problem. But yeah, that's how we got this um, call. And basically, this was from a, a shipping agent, was a third party. Um, he was calling um, rescue teams and we were the first one to pick up and say yes. Congrats on that. Now, what was going through your mind? I mean, you hear five guys trapped in an explosion offshore. What are some of the thought processes you're thinking of as you're ramping up for this? Oh, man, it was uh, it was quite the day. It was basically, you know, I needed more information, what the hazards were. And as we got going, it just turned into more and more. I think at the end of this whole deal, I was at like 500 phone calls. But uh, the main thing was like, how do we mobilize the team, get the gear down there um, in a fast and and my main thing was, how fast do we go? Do we charter a jet um, and then, or do we take commercial? Because are these guys in dire straits? Uh, so that was a big thing, just the logistics, how to move everything over there. Uh, we we have uh, connections with people in our local area with different jets that we can charter to get over there, but the cost goes way up. And so that's something right away we have to weigh, you know, how much gear do we need and um, sort of our thing is the mission and the team dictate what gear or techniques we use. And uh, this one was like, man, we better bring everything but the kitchen sink, you know, to to make sure this gets done right. So, Right on. And I'm going to ask you a few questions. And if you don't want to answer them for whatever reason, I'm, I'm cool with that as well. Um, you're mobilizing your team. Uh, so that's the team at peak how many people do you have to choose from their skill sets of those people i just there's a lot of folks that listen to these podcasts that are creating teams and making teams and this type of information would certainly be of interest to them yeah so i have about 10 core guys that i would take basically anywhere in the world that are um super dialed and and that are instructors for me that um, we train with all the time i can pull a bigger pool from that but for me um, these guys, I know I can put them in any situation and they're, um, I know their backgrounds and skills and these guys are, you know, Sprat certified. Uh, we do their mountain, um, industry. They sort of know all those trades and which to me is something I want out of a team to have all those skills and move into it. Uh, there's a lot more than that, but for me, it's about 10 guys I pull from. Yeah. Understand. And it's funny. You talk to a lot of training and response organizations and they only have between 10 to 15 top tier individuals it uh, takes a lot of time to get to that level it, it does and and we see that it's our craft is uh getting so dialed in it's you, you realize man you want to have somebody at your back and that's one of the things that eiders um i really wanted to put out there is that 
you know, we learned pretty fast when we were out there in the middle of the ocean with, you know, nothing around us that we wanted to have another backup team for us. We learned that pretty fast. And for me, I wanted to reach out to different people and, um, you know, have these teams on standby or have somebody that we can call that we trust uh, to come in and um, help up, help us if we get into trouble. So, yeah. You know, that's a total tangent. That's a greatest side of this particular industry, the sharing and the ability for what would generally be competitors to work together, I think does separate rescue from things like a rope access or other, you know, offshoots of the industry. Not that rope access is an offshoot, but rescue certainly seems to be able to have a lot of them or the majority of people put their personal feelings aside and assist each other when needed. Yeah, it's great. And I, and I think, I always tell people there's enough work out there. I don't need to be competitive with people. I think there's a lot of great information. Um, that's what I love about the competitions going on right now all over. Um, you're just going to learn. And I think that our sort of craft is evolving daily as we go. I think it's pretty exciting time to be in this world. Right on. So gear wise, um, what did you decide to bring with you in regards to gear and get into specifics on it, if you don't mind? Not at all. Yeah, we decided to go sort of rope access style. Um, we took, you know, um, class three harnesses with the crawls. We didn't know, you know, our first report was that they were 200 feet down in the leg of this rig. And so um, we just started thinking. So we took everything from Grions to Jag kits and mini hauls. Um, we at this point, I think we had a, a Maestro, which is out now. We were doing some product testing for that. So I think we even took that as far as a hauling. Um, and then we, SCBAs and SAR was our big concern because we found out later that we were dealing with an atmosphere and there actually was no explosion. It was an atmosphere deer. So, um, that was sort of a problem like flying with, uh, air was, I'm sure you've run into, um, it's sort of a hit or miss. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times it's rip the valves off and find a dive shop on the other side. It's exactly right. So we actually contacted, um, this is another joint thing. We contacted somebody in Texas, a company, a buddy of mine, Russ Keller with R and R rescue. And we had him meet us. He called and answered the phone right away. Yep, Mike, whatever I can do to help you. He grabbed his trailer, um, drove. He brought SAR and a bunch of, uh, I think he had like 18 bottles and, and SCBA packs. And he met us down in Houston. Um, so that was another one of those, you know, calling different people. But that was something we didn't have to deal with then. And he brought a trailer full of, full of goodies. As far as us, we sort of... Uh, the best way to describe it would be like Grimp Day on steroids. We grabbed our Grimp Day kits and like took off is what I always tell people. Uh, I know you're heavily involved in that, but it was like, what do you take to do the job? And it was sort of, um, you know, our personal kits, which was awesome. Right on. I'm just going to read a little bit here just so that people kind of get an idea. It says, later we received the blueprint of the decommissioned oil rig and I studied it as we made the journey from Wyoming to Louisiana. Three men were stuck in a confined space approximately 170 feet down the leg of a decommissioned offshore drilling rig. Complicating the matter even more, the accident involved coordinating and communicating with a group of Indian seamen, the Coast Guard, coroner, ports, helicopter service, boat captains, two large companies from India, all within international waters. Navigating the nuances of the retrieval, while also balancing the sensitivity of different cultures and burial procedures, as well as the skepticism surrounding the events of the accident became something I wanted to share with other rescuers. So 
I mean, that really kind of sums it up. When did you find out whether this was going to be a true rescue or a recovery? And when did you find out what was exactly the problem in regards to, you said it was atmosphere, not an explosion? It basically was later on. Um, it was probably about five hours into um, sort of organizing. And we basically got a call back from the shipping agent and said that um, they... <clears throat> There was five people involved that was atmosphere and that the three of them were presumed deceased and two of them made it out. Um, and we basically at this point slowed everything down. We were still mobilizing, but as we all know, it's a recovery at this point is we thought there wasn't confirmation yet. Um, so to us, we still were, you know, doing our thing, but we decided not to charter a jet to um, add that on in the long run. I think I still should have. Um, there's some things I'll talk about as far as weather moving in that sort of pressured us. But yeah, it was it was uh, this at this point we found out it was a, um, an atmosphere deal, and they basically had gotten hung up on a a sandbar in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of nowhere, and they had went down, and one of the pontoons of this rig had filled up with water. They went down to pump out the water, and they basically took this um, little motor down there and started it, and it was CO poisoning. Um, so in the reports we got that they went down within uh, three to five minutes of being down there. And so, you know, we start doing our hazmat or, or confined space stuff. And basically we're looking at 10,000 parts per million of CO. Um, so really heavy. And one report we got from the Coast Guard was as soon as they hit the door at the top deck, uh, their five gas went off and they turned around and left. Of course, I asked what the readings were and uh, they just said it beeped at them and they left. So. Yeah, even at 10,000, you're probably going to overrange the monitor. But it's it's incredible as a tangent here again that, I mean, the largest mass cas I was involved with was 42 people down from CO poisoning. I just don't think people understand about running small engines in small spaces. It just doesn't work. <laughs> no, and and we learned pretty fast that these these um, these guys on the ship, they just had no training. I mean, they were coming from third world countries uh, they basically take these decommissioned rigs, they chop them up, and the company that gets it gets about $10 million just in scrap metal and the blowout valves and the um, block preventers, I guess, and the cranes. It's a big business, but they pay, you know, these guys have no training, and they ride on these things that are decommissioned and basically just ride them into the ground and chop them up and, and move them over to India. So just no training. Yeah, they brought basically their doom down with them. So. Right. Oh. Um, so. You get on commercial air then from Wyoming down to Louisiana? We did. We flew out. We had one, uh, I think it was the next morning, super early. We were in Houston, and we were flew into Houston, and we based sort of right outside of Galveston, Texas. Okay. And um, once you've got down there, any more information, or how did you decide that you were going to get out to the rig at this point? How far offshore was the rig? So that was a huge thing. We basically met with um, sort of the the owners of the ship and uh, and then the one that we interviewed one of the guys who had been down there. And that's one of the things I wanted to do. He was out of the hospital. So we actually got to look at his hospital report. We phoned it back to a doctor friend in Wyoming who looked at it just to see we could confirm it was CO, which there was no confirmation. So we still didn't know what we were dealing with. There was a lot of misinformation. Um, but they basically wanted to take us out in boats and they said three to four hours in calm seas. Um, and right away I was like, we're going to do helis. We're going to, we're going to secure some helicopters 
just because I've dealt with them a lot. And I felt like it was like an hour flight. Um, we were moving a bunch of gear and guys, and obviously it's a cost deal, but for us, I'm not going to make my guys go out in rough seas. And then their plan was it was decommissioned and to crane us off the boat to get us up there. And uh, we, we kind of put a kibosh on that right away and decided to secure helicopters. Um, we did in the end agree to take our gear out in the boat. Um, and that kind of sort of bit us in the end because we landed and basically none of the cranes were working. Um, so we, we landed on the helicopters and we're looking at all of our gear at the bottom, which was not a good thing to have. <laughs> okay. Um, couple points with that. Did the helicopter let you bring compressed air on, like your SCBA, anything like that? They did. That's a huge thing that we sort of run into all over the world is like, does it, and it's sort of down to the pilot. Um, the more comfortable they are with you, the more um, willing they are to let you do things. Um, we had a great pilot. We worked with Republic Helicopters down there. They were awesome. They had a whole fleet of helicopters. They said, however we can help, we'll um, and we did do that because the first day we got down there, we had a lot of things to do. We had that interview and the big thing I wanted was a recon mission to see what we were actually dealing with. We had the schematics of the space, but, uh, it turns out one of my big takeaways was get eyes on the prize because what it looked like after, you know, this thing was built in 1974 after years of them putting things in and taking it out, it looked totally different. So we took a recon team out. Um, that night and uh, with SCBAs, he led us in five gas and we sort of let two guys had um, go ahead of us. I took a six man team, uh, two guys go ahead and clear the spaces. We went down until they um, got readings and then sort of we came in behind them just looking at how we were going to extricate the the victims. Yeah, it's funny. It's uh, from the military. We used to call that ground truth. You used to get like the little mud map models and all that sort of stuff. And then when you hit the ground and the enemy, in this case being atmosphere and the hazards get a vote, all of a sudden the entire plan changes, right? Yeah, I mean, that was huge for us. It was like you have this perfect plan in your mind. Uh, but in the end, it's like, man, you need eyes on the prize to get it done. And I think that's a big one we took away from that is like have a general idea, but man, be ready to change it because uh, what it actually looked like was totally different. Right on. Now, you mentioned you called back to a doctor just to get some updates in regards to medical. What was the medical capability of the team that deployed? Well, so we we wanted to confirm we had his medical records. And so he provided those with us and we asked if we could send them to a doctor. We just wanted to see in his re, in his medical records if we were dealing with a CO. Um, and all of us are um, we had medics on the team. Um and we just wanted to make sure we were trying to, you know, kind of pinpoint. We, we'd we been told it was CO and we kind of had an idea, but man, we didn't rule out anything. So we were trying to see if it actually was CO. And, and what he got back to us is inconclusive. So we really didn't know at this point. Okay. Now, you mentioned in your uh, in the write-up that I'm reading, and if people are interested, there's a little write-up on this on the Eider's website. Uh, you said there's a lot of big wigs, and I'm quoting there. Uh, mm -hmm. trying to scramble around a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I'm quoting there as well, becoming a problem. And you had to learn to make decisions that would execute the job safely and efficiently rather than listen to the multitude of experts that showed up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we had the owners pressure, you know, pressuring us to get it done fast because they're losing money. This is a pretty expensive operation. They had one of the biggest uh, tugboats and it was the biggest tugboat in the Gulf uh, pulling on it because this thing was still stuck. It was listing three to five degrees on each. So about 10 or 15 feet 
Uh, the first time we landed in the helicopter, it started to slide. And as you can imagine, the, um, the pilot definitely didn't like that. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, definitely not. And so there's all this stuff going on. So they're sort of pressuring us and you have to remember, we're thinking, you know, we come from that world of, well, it's a recovery, so we're not going to be hurried. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't have all these outside pressures of money. We knew there was a storm coming in a couple days that um, was going to shut it down for probably, you know, flight and maybe even um, boat for a week. So there was a lot of these outside pressures that basically I just had to take over and say, you know, no, we're not doing this. Uh, we had a captain show up that was trying to be, I see, we always work as operations underneath these incidents. And I tell them that, you know, we're just ops coming in to do our thing. Um, but it was pretty clear at the end we needed to take over and start make decisions. So, um, yeah, that's where I talk about all those. And then we even had the Coast Guard. They left. They they basically said, hey, if you need help or a flight off the deck, give us a call. Or um, they don't have technical rescue teams. And so as soon as we get into those spaces, um, they're sort of um, sort of useless to us at that point. They were um, as helpful as they could be. But um, they were like, hey, call us when they're out and they're done. Um, and that was about it. Okay. Um, you mentioned the helicopter slid when it hit the deck. Did they find a spot better to land or did you guys end up having to hover exit off the high side? No, we wound up landing. He got it to set. He tried a couple times and set it down and then we got off and he basically kept it powered up and then sort of sat there for a little bit. Um, uh, and then we thought about tying it down, but, um, he let it sit. He was a great pilot. I, uh, give him John, his name is John with Republic. He's a awesome guy. He went up, um, setting it down and uh, he was comfortable and then we tied it down the first time I believe uh, just to make sure it didn't slide off but uh, after we were there it kept because what we found out is we'd be in the space or on the deck and the whole rig would shift because the current was still trying to move and so you'd be inside or on the deck and the whole thing would just shift and kind of rock on you which was <laughs> pretty unnerving also um, so yeah that's another thing we had to deal with was this thing was still trying to um, push over or move around. Okay. Now a couple of your decision-making points here. Now we, you know, one hour helicopter versus a three to four hour boat ride. Now you said that the gear was at the bottom when you showed up in the helicopter or after, how did you end up getting your gear back up to the top side? So yeah, we had to get, we had to load the gear that night and this is all taking place in about a 24 hour period, but we had to load the gear that night and get it shipped off to a boat that would take off. Like I think they took off at one or two in the morning and they 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 got out there so by the time we got out there in helicopters it was sort of waiting for us um when it broke down they kept telling us they could fix this crane and they could try all these other things basically and the waves were hitting um i just put a kibosh to it i gave them that timeline <clears throat> which i'm used to doing as far as you know cutoffs for summits or whatever when i have clients but i basically said at one o'clock we're done you guys are we're not gonna and in the end they never got it running so it was a good call but i basically got in contact with the boat captain and we had him take off. And instead of going to Texas, we had him go to Louisiana, which was a little bit closer. And we got in the heli, um, Russ and I got in the helis and um, basically just told him, hey, we see an inlet, just pull over here. We landed in a field, uh, grabbed some random guys we saw in the uh, working in a, like in a, an old uh, kind of scrap yard. And they helped us basically shuffle gear from the, um, the boat into the helicopter and this is where we kind of had to say okay now we brought everything now we have to cut all that down we had SAR SCBAs 
uh, tons of gear and we basically cut everything back to like, you know, what we just needed to do the job. And so SAR got cut right away because the pilot was like, hey, I'll give you guys, you know, 500 pounds of gear and that's it, which sounds like a lot. But um, yeah, we had to get rid of SAR. So we went up going SCBA, which um, in the end was, you know, a decision you think like, man, you're in this, it was a, it was an ideal H atmosphere. So um, yeah, we loaded up there. We picked what we thought we needed to do and then we flew back to the, to the rig. So. Yeah. For folks that haven't worked around aircraft, especially the smaller aircraft, I can remember times where, you know, pilots are telling me you got 650 pounds and that includes the two of you. And it's yep. like, wow, we need to find some lighter dudes to do this rescue. <laughs> Exactly. That's what I said. Of uh, I should have. I told him, man, I should have sent uh, John or um, Dixon and other these other lighter guys. But uh, we could have got a little more gear. Um, right on. So you end, said more rope. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just say in the end, that's another you know another point. I wish I would have just secured a couple of helicopters or three of them, and just I mean it would have saved us in the long run as far as that. But yeah, just having them ferrying shuttle gear around and having somebody available almost in the air all the time for you. Yeah, exactly. Having I mean, someone fly top cover is always nice. Um, so you said more rope access, kind of the Grimp team style of gear. So you guys are bringing in 10 and a half or 11 mil ropes, I'm assuming? Um, I think actually Russ brought a lot of that. I think it was half inch is because what okay. he had. Um, we usually work with 11 or smaller, honestly. But I think that's in the end is I'm almost positive that's what we had to use. Uh, so it was a couple ropes. Yeah, we had Petzl IDs, um, and I, yeah, that's what we ran. Uh, okay. But yeah, Astro harnesses, um, yeah, Jag kits, um, yeah, Grions, yeah, that style. Okay. Uh, what kind of SCBA, just out of curiosity? Uh, we ran, um, I'm trying to think what's based out of Houston. Now it's, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, that's where uh, Russ picked it all up uh, I want to say MS out of Houston and they own who do they own now? <laughs> yeah, everybody. <laughs> I think it's Scott they own actually, but I'm not entirely sure on that. Uh, I want to say it was MSA is what we wound okay. up getting from that. And uh, he had a contact at the factory there, the main area. So he picked it all up and brought it to us. And that's what we wound up running um, for the operations. You know, they, we basically got it down to, there was seven levels that we had to get down through and, uh, we we wound up running off of like level four, if you can imagine, it's kind of hard, or level three to get down into these, um, the spaces. And basically, these guys had cut these holes because in 1974, the spaces they were crawling down in these ladders were super small, like a normal human with an air pack wouldn't fit through this, even going down the ladders. So you had to hang them between your legs or all these techniques we teach people, but they had cut little holes to get this pump down. And they were offset. So um, we went up using, yeah, SCBAs for that. Okay. You mentioned there were hazards everywhere on this decommissioned oil rig. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, yeah. This thing, um, it was so rusted out. You couldn't step in some spots because they were afraid it was going to fall through. There was holes in it. Uh, and it was about 200 feet to the water from the top deck. Um, there was areas they didn't want us going into. Some of the machines were moving around. Because it was shifting and um, moving around on us unexpectedly, um, things were slapping around. Some of the cranes, at one point, they came, came swinging around and smashed, and you see people running. Um, they still had a 10-person crew on there. 
And yeah, it was interesting. And then not to mention, as we got down into the space, uh, there was stuff everywhere as far as packed in there. And this thing had been decommissioned for six months, so or maybe longer, but they had just thrown everything in there. Stuff was trash. So as we moved down, it just got, the spaces got tighter and tighter. As is where we packaged the, um, the victims, um, I could touch both walls um, in a 360 degrees where we packaged two of them. So to say it was tight uh, was, yeah, be, I think, yeah, it was really tight and uh, doing that on air sort of pitch black. It was something, yeah, it was, yeah, as you got down farther in the space, it just got tighter and tighter. Right on. Um, guys for the job, you have a little note here about, you know, need to be dialed in hazmat specialist, technical rescue specialist. I'll throw in medics and things like that. Uh, some comments on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to pick this crew, I was very specific and I wanted my top tier guys is, um, they needed to know it all. Uh, you know, I think hazmat and we all sort of give it a bad name, but I think hazmat and confined space go hand in hand. And I learned that pretty fast in my career early on. Um, so yeah, they, I wanted technicians of both and I brought specialists for that and, um, that, you know, could tell me things about the hazmat. Maybe I'm a technician, but, um, I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm probably not the guy to bring in for the, um, the hot hazmat deal. Um, so I brought, yeah, everybody had like sort of their specialty. I had an ex, you know, we have ex military guys to hazmat specialists to, um, there's a guy, John Birch that I teach with, who is super dialed in um, technique and I knew he was going to go down with me because I knew whatever we, we were sort of on and we hadn't seen the space and I knew whatever we got into, me and him could handle as far as, as that goes. So yeah, I was very specific in picking my team on who I wanted. Um, in the end, I found out when you're an hour flight and you haven't seen land and all you see is ocean and uh, you're from Wyoming, I thought, man, it would have been pretty smart to have another team on standby or uh, at least alert it. So uh, that was a big takeaway for me. Now, just as an uh, aside to that, when you're flying out there, were they making you fly out in suits because you're over water for so long? Or what's the uh, what's the rules down in that part of the world? So no suits. We did have uh, PFDs on us, obviously, for, uh, for ditch efforts. Um, and then most of us had had our training as far as they want you to have, um, you know, as yeah. far as uh, ditching at sea. But um, they just had us do their... They're PFDs that just wrap around you um, pretty light. No suits at that point. Yes, I forget. I'm from Canada. If I fly out over water, we're in suits because you freeze to death long before anything else. <laughs> yeah, I think we would have just been sitting in the water for a while waiting for a shark or something to get us. It wasn't uh, super cold. But yeah, just the... Um, you mentioned here, obviously we chatted a bit, SCBA. You went down a few levels in order to... Uh, help assist you with the amount of time because obviously you know you only need to be on air for so long then was this a big factor like did you have to rotate guys or rotate packs in order to get all three bodies out of the space and what size scba were you using yeah so we were using one hour bottles and uh we we did rotate we did wind up rotating guys and i think all said and done with the operation we only had one bottle left a full bottle left and we had some half bottles, but to me that was like cutting it really close. Um, and I guess to expand on that, I had, you know, we had the storm moving in and these people had been down there. There was a bunch of closure we needed to get done. Um, in that culture, they like to, um, have an open casket with these 
individuals, the families do, and, and I'll talk about that later, but they, this turned into be a huge problem. So we were getting pushed by that. And, you know, we didn't want to delay the operation by a week with this storm coming in. So we just decided to go for it. We used single rope technique, which we were all super comfortable with. We also knew we weren't you know, dealing with um, a live patient. Uh, we were super comfortable doing that, coming off of our taglines in the space because our other contingency plan was uh, we lowered through these tight spaces, but we had the ladders to get out of, which were actually tighter than the spaces that we lowered through. Um, yeah, so we, we wound up going with the SCBAs that were our bottles, and we rotated uh, just four of us through. Uh, John and myself packaged all three of the victims that were on different levels, by the way. Uh, victims one and two were at the very bottom, and three was above that. We uh, we packaged all of them, and then we had to trade out. Um, something big that I ran into was heat. We did our JSA for the day, our, our hazards. Um, we definitely did a full permit, and we kind of ran it because we really wanted to slow down and do it right. But what I had at the bottom was like, heat exhaustion or overheat. Well, that kind of moved right up. We were in Tyvek suits because of the condition of the, the victims. And you're in SCBAs, it's 88 degrees outside and it's stale inside this thing, no air movement. Um, it, it became where we were overheating pretty fast. You, I mean, this is a fitness thing where we had guys and we were wringing out our shirts at one point. I made everybody take a break and drink water as we moved up. But uh, yeah, that moved high up in there as far as exertion. You're overheating your guys. And we always talk about it in confined space. To, to actually see this, man, we're really working our guys. That was big for us. That's a great takeaway. And the other one is that single rope technique. You're not the first person that I've chatted with. Nor, I mean, even myself, when I'm doing body recovery, a lot of times people are moving to SRT in those systems, it's faster. Um, there's always outside pressures, even when moving bodies. And like you say, the, the risk hazard matrix that you look at, you're not going to kill somebody twice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I always tell people there's a huge difference when I'm getting, you know, helicoptered into these remote areas in Wyoming where I have a rock wall and a cooler and I'm going into a moat to recover or, you know, try to rescue somebody I'm like, yeah, I'll use single rope technique because I have a snow anchor and a rock anchor and I'm doing a high line to get down any of these moats to get them. And I mean, you know, the rescue community would probably have a fit if I, but it's like, you know, you do what you can to get it done. And I think all those skill sets come in. Um, you know, I tell people, hey, yeah, the last one I had in Wyoming was like a snow anchor and a rock anchor to do this reading high line to get down in. And you're sort of doing it all by yourself at this point because I get helicoptered in a bunch with usually a small, small team. But yeah, it's to me, it's if you're comfortable and your team is comfortable with it, use the techniques you think are appropriate. I don't like getting stuck into that. You know, you always have to do it this way, you know. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned here maneuvering eight deviations in a three foot diameter space, Munter Mule with six foot length of cord. So you want to just uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, that was that was a big takeaway. We went up. Um, the, the spaces were so tight, we wound up finding on one level that was bigger that we could run our hull systems from. And we had to deviate because um, of the way these holes or these openings were eight different times. And what we took away from that is it's nice to have JAG kits or Aztecs where you can move these deviations around or release them. But you run out of those pretty quick, especially when you're short on gear. And um, the takeaway from that is like a six foot piece of cord or eight foot just doing a muncher mule 
to deviate those because now when the um, victim or the um, rescuers come up through the space, you can release them and it, and it helps it deviate right into the other um, space, if that makes sense, line up. Um, I guess simple was, you know, the sort of king there. We we wanted more, um, you know, high tech stuff. But in the end, Munter Mules, which I bring over from the backcountry side, is huge in that world and can find space, which, you know, is not common knowledge. And we teach that now. And it's been crazy how much, uh, man, I wish I would have um, been teaching that for years. It's a, it's a great technique. No, and once again, I've heard a few other people that talk about it. And I think for the people that are listening to the podcast, they can't visualize it. Think of a column that jogs every so many feet up so that if you fell in a hole, you don't fall all the way to the bottom. It jogs back and forth. And so what you're talking about is running deviation so that you can allow one fluid movement of rope up the system with a mechanical advantage at the top and release the deviations as they pass each one of those um, windows, uh, you know, horizontal windows as you're moving vertically through it. Is that like my kind of saying that correctly? Yeah, you did a way better job than I did. Uh, that's exactly right. And uh, you just want to uh, explain to the people what a muncher mule is. I mean, backcountry, like you say, we use it a lot. Um, we used it a little bit in an industrial, but it definitely has a place. If you just want to explain to the listeners what a muncher mule is. Yeah, you basically just take a, a, a muncher hitch. Um, you can wrap it around anything, columns, stairs, whatever you want. And uh, then you're just tying that off, basically, and so it's releasable. So you're basically putting a knot in it to where when, uh, if you need to, you release it. In the backcountry, you use it a lot just for rescue situations or partner rescue um, because everything we tie off to in the backcountry, we want to make sure it's releasable. And the Muncher Mules definitely um, radium releasing hitches, what a lot of industry guys know. Um, and it's sort of the same concept. Now, when you mule it off, are you doing a half hitch followed by an overhand? Yes, exactly. Yep, okay. half hitch with the overhand. Yep. And then, um, you know, you get into that uh, guide world where, like, oh, you need to have redundancy. But in this <laughs> case, we were, <laughs> we, uh, we just did our thing. So, um, yeah. yeah and the consequence world. of it isn't really all that problematic if your muncher mule failed in that aspect you're going to take someone that's i mean and, and for the people that are listening please don't think that i'm trying to be crass when i speak like this but you really have to do you really have to differentiate between rescue and recovery and when you look at non-redundant systems for recovery if it slips the consequence is very low yeah and i think i mean that's to do our jobs well we kind of have to be you know very um systematic in our in our ways and i think you 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 just talked about that but we we definitely just have to go in there and do our jobs or we wouldn't be good at it so um yeah we we made some decisions on the fly and i think uh in the end they were right and there was little things i would have changed and i said i would have brought more just pieces of cord to those releasable um deviations because we had trouble with one at the very bottom and uh in the end uh, you know that would have helped us a ton so absolutely um a couple of the other things that you've got here. Uh, we talked a little bit about keeping the team safe when you said about the physical labor and stuff, but there's a couple of points here that both come together. Transportation of the bodies once retrieved and navigating different cultures. And I think that's something a lot of people in rescue don't realize is that, or even recovery. There's always these external pressures. Could you talk about those two? Yeah, it, definitely. This was, um, we had to learn a lot about their culture. After we did our recon, we flew and we met the, the team and um, they were very, I mean, these guys had just had 
three of their mates uh, perish in this incident and they're still on. They're still having to work or they're still on this. They're not going anywhere. Um, I mean, the conditions they were living in were horrible. And so, yeah, we kind of gave rapport with them. They offered us food and uh, and we learned like in their culture, you don't want to turn that down. Um, going in, we we sort of we sort of researched more about their culture and found out there's power colors and we brought them out a mug for their tea, you know, a, a green and red. And we kind of talked to them about that. But we learned pretty fast that we were dealing with sort of them as a, uh, and not really the, the victim, the, the deceased, what we still had to treat them as sort of, uh, victims and they were on the ship. So sort of navigating that was pretty interesting. And I think in the long run, um, that was big. And I think teams that are responding all over the world, I think that's big for them to sort of see what they're getting into those problems. Cause they would always come up to us and ask us, what do they look like or what's going on down there? And I thought it was fairly morbid at first, but then if you look at it, the culture, they want them out right away and they do do these open um, ceremonies with the families. And so they wanted to do that as fast as possible. So the more we delayed it, the more it was hurting them in the end, that culture. Um, yeah, it was, it was sort of a um, deal. And I, and, and another part of that logistics was just trying to find where to check these bodies into the U S um, that turned out, I found a, um, a coroner who would accept them in Louisiana, which a lot of people wouldn't. So you have to bring their passports, check them in uh, through a port, and then that coroner has to take control of them. They do an autopsy and then they ship them to India. Uh, so this was this whole process, one of the 500 phone calls, one of the calls trying to make, as this process is going on, trying to get them dealt with and moving them. And then even when we got them to the top side, how we were going to move them to the boat or via helicopter was a whole nother whole nother issue so yeah and i mean you can kind of just see the conflicting you know points of view in here you've got an owner that wants it done in a timely fashion but doesn't want to break the bank doing it you've got family and crewmates that wants it done as fast as possible in order to respect the cultural limits you've got the team that has a finite amount of air and a finite window due to weather to get this operation completed so there is a whole lack of competing and conflicting factors in this case definitely and i and i told people i'd like to say that we're just this great team that showed up and you know kill us but there was pressures whether i admit it or not that were on me for that and you think well it was a recovery um, we get them in real rescues i was just on one actually 3 days ago uh, here in a mountain and, uh, you know, this girl was, was fine and there's other pressures when they're alive, but I would be lying if I didn't say there was all these outside pressures sort of dictating my decisions on this. And that's something I've stepped away as sort of the lead on that thinking, man, did I make all these right decisions? And, um, yeah, I don't think I was pressured into too much, but in the end it was like, yeah, there was, like I said, having one bottle, uh, full bottle at the end of all of our operations, those are pretty slim margins for recovery. And I think like, man, we need to step back and think, did we do the right thing there? Um, yeah, it's just something I always like to look back on after the fact and hopefully during. Right on. Now you mentioned international waters was an interesting thing with regulations and working out there. What do you mean by that? Oh man, international waters, anything goes, they do not care. There's a, uh, we found out pretty fast, you know, most of the time, um, OSHA law is about uh, two to three miles, seven off of Texas, or, you know, let's say it goes out about 10 miles as far as maritime. After that, it goes into a maritime law, which you can follow or you can't. You know, I've been on, you know, 
there's some of these big companies with big rigs where you could probably eat off the floor. Or there's these other companies, these decommissioned things that they're moving around where they have living conditions are horrible. They have no regulation. Um, they're following no laws whatsoever and nobody cares. So moving into that was huge for us that you're basically on your own. It's, it's cowboy time. It's, uh, there's nobody coming to get you. Um, there is no laws out there. If somebody dies, they basically will stick them in a freezer and just take them, you know, into shore and, and check them into the nearest corner. Um, yeah, there was no, there was nothing what you think of when you go to that industry happening out there. Uh, no rules whatsoever. So that was sort of a hit for us too. Wow. Um, anything else that you want to bring up? I mean, this is an outstanding uh, overview of this and I appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you want to bring or any lessons that you learned particularly from this? Um, no, I, nothing I didn't bring. Like I said, I think the big one was just moving in. I think we're going to start getting more of these calls. Uh, there, it's, it's interesting as a private company, we're both on fire departments or on these response team, regional response team or FEMAs. And I think it's a whole different world when you move in that way as compared to when you move in private. Um, to me, that was a big takeaway, like having all that pre-planned out. And then, like I said, actually getting other companies, uh, Ronin or whoever it is, um, just for a backup. Say, hey, man, we're going to be in this part of the world doing this. Can you guys have available or what's your guys's, you know, timeline on how fast you could get to us? Because um, I've said before, there's there's people I want to trust in those situations in my own team. But it's it's hard to find, as you said, you know, you go to most companies and they're like, yeah, we only have 10 to 15 guys that we would take. And so that was a big takeaway for me is like having that backup from um, partners in that, you know, in our world, I guess. So it's interesting. We've chatted like internally a little bit around here about that, where when we're wearing a, you know, the blue, blue shirt and the part of the public sector, uh, fire department response, money's never usually an object. If we have to get something done, we can pretty much break and spend what we want. And then, you know, it's that transition when you're doing it privately, like you said, there is a bunch of other factors and make no mistake about it, money is usually the number one because somebody is paying for this and they want it done as fast and as cheap as possible. Yeah, definitely. And that's just sort of the world we live in. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate your thoughts and your insights in this. And uh, what a great job. I mean, you guys did an outstanding recovery and some very, very technical and challenging uh, situations. Thanks, Mark, for having me on. I appreciate it.